Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to First uh, Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, as we continue moving through this, uh, this letter from Paul to the church at Corinth, uh, in which he is trying to uh, get them to become who they are, and by extension, trying to get us to become who we are. That is, God, who God has made us. God has transformed us through the power and blood of Jesus Christ. He has made us new creatures. He has called us to himself. He has um, uh, provided uh, just a, a, an abundance of uh, gifts and abilities and um, realities to help us in that journey. And Paul, dealing with this church that, that's, that's very young, this church that is in, as we mentioned before, one of the most hedonistic uh, cities of the Roman Empire, uh, they're going to have some struggles. There's going to be some things that they just don't understand. And uh, we've just moved through the section uh, of the letter where Paul is dealing with that issue of, of freedom versus license. That is, uh, the freedom we have in Christ versus uh, presuming upon Christ. And um, as we move into chapter 11, we move into a, a new section. Um, and chapter 11 itself is kind of a transitional point because he's going to bring up a few of the points that he's already made about freedom and so forth. But he's, he's really moving now more into the subject of worship. And what that looks like, um, you know, over the last couple decades in especially the American church, we've, we've had, you know, the struggle uh, in our churches as to exactly what worship means, what it includes, and what it what it looks like. And uh, there have been churches that have divided over it. Um, a lot of our churches have gone to split services uh, where, you know, you have your traditional service and then you have your contemporary service. Um, the church I came from. Did that uh, in, in Bedford, um, but I, I was I was never really comfortable with that. I, I always thought that was um, problematic on many levels because it, it really turned into it, it almost always turned into an us and them. Well, that service over there, or you know that sort of thing, and, and so uh, I, I always viewed it as kind of divisive. So we here, um, you know, as as we move and as we as we operate, we've done blended service, or we're, we're doing a little bit of, of both. And I know that for some of you, that's not your ideal. Some of you would prefer to be very much in the traditional setting. Others of you would be very much uh, prefer to be in the in the contemporary setting. Um, and um, so I appreciate the fact that, that you continue to come, support, participate uh, in this time when maybe it's not exactly all that you want it to be. But I hope that you are experiencing true worship. Don and, and Drew do just a wonderful job of leading us, and um, I, I really appreciate their heart and their, their spirit for for ministry and for seeing God honored and glorified with what we do here on Sunday morning. I, I just see that in, in our conversations. I've, I've heard that many times, and so uh, thank you, too, uh, for, for your leadership in, in that way. Um, but worship is, has always been a struggle. It's not just a new thing. Um, you know, I, I read some of Spurgeon's writings and some of his comments on the organ, how it's it's the organ is of Satan and, and, and that sort of thing. In, your, in, in our context, the organ's the, the old way of doing things. But in his context, you know, that was new and that was, he's like, you know, um, that, that's it's not something that you do. It's, uh, go back even further to, to our time here with Paul. And people were struggling over worship. What do we do? How do we dress? 
What, what, what things do we participate in? What things do we um, include? What things do we carry with us from our culture? Um, how do we handle the fact that, that we're different? And we're going to be looking over the next couple of weeks as, as we're in chapters 11 through 14 at the different principles that, that Paul puts forward uh, with each one of, of those questions that the church there is asking. The principle that we're dealing with today is this issue of respect. Um, respect for uh, others, uh, respect for ourselves, respect for God, as, we, as we'll see as we go through this passage. Um, now, the setting here, the context here, is is the Lord's Supper, which is appropriate since that's what we're participating in today. I almost like that was planned or something. Um, but um, they did the Lord's Supper a little bit different in those days than we do, um, in the sense that they had what were called love feasts. I mentioned this just briefly last week, but um, these these love feasts, these 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 meals would take place before the Lord's Supper. It would culminate in the Lord's Supper, but before that, there would be times in these house churches, in, in these settings, where people would come together and they would um, they would share a meal. And uh, as I reflected on before, uh, the Lord's Supper in, in their setting was really more about the victory that Christ had accomplished uh, in his resurrection than it was about the, the cross itself. They, they recognized the cross. They recognized the elements as his body and his blood, as we do. But it was more driven toward the victory that Christ had won. And so the love feast really led into that and was a time of celebration and just uh, excitement and enjoyment and, and people coming together. But what has happened here at the church in Corinth is you, you're, you're developing factions. And in particular, you're developing factions uh, between the wealthy and the poor. There were some there in the church that were wealthy, but most uh, most Christians in the early years were uh, from the slave populations, were from uh, from the poor populations. And so you had this division. How do we treat those different environments? How do we treat the, the, those different individuals? And, and Paul is addressing that situation here. Uh, as as he begins, he says here in verse 2, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And so he says, y'all are still practicing the things that I taught you. you you're, you're participating in these things that are a part of Christian tradition, part of, of, of Christian culture. And, and, and at the heart of, of this uh, of this whole chapter really is that traditions are important, but absent respect in the proper places, they become sin. What we do here as a church, the customs that we have, and, and we have customs, we have things that we do. Uh, if, if we didn't publish the, the order of service, y'all would pretty much know what we're going to do every Sunday. Okay, and, and that's true of just about every Baptist church I've ever been a part of, even the contemporary ones. There, there, there's this kind of set pattern to how we do things. You know, the, the sermon's usually at the end and, and that sort of thing and, and kind of leads towards that and, and all of that. that that's customs. Those are traditions. And they speak about who we are. They speak about what's important to us. They speak about uh, the priorities. They speak about kind of how we envision Christianity as a whole and we, how we envision our, our tasks. Traditions are important. Although they've often become a, a dirty word in our culture, they are important. 
But if we carry out those traditions absent or without respect, then it becomes sin. The book of Amos, the prophet there talks about how, how traditional the people of Israel were, the northern kingdom, and how they, they were bringing their sacrifices, and they were bringing their tithes, and they were bringing their, their objects of worship. They were, they were participating in those things. In fact, Amos talks about how they were going overboard with them, doing them far more than what was even necessarily expected. But he makes a note after observing all those things that, that their sin was in fact, or excuse me, their worship was in fact sin. Because they were doing it because it's what they wanted, not what God desired. And they were doing it because they were trying to get some sort of material blessing out of it instead of worshiping and honoring God. And they were doing it to, to manipulate things. And they were doing it because they wanted to look good. And they were doing it because, you know, that, that was their tradition. But it was absent respect of God, absent respect of each other. They were mistreating each other on a day-to-day -day basis. And then they'd go to worship on, on Saturday and look how great we are. So. It's important as we, we talk about our traditions, as we talk about the things that we do that and the Lord's Supper today. You know, we, we kind of have a set way of doing that. As we do it, are we doing it with the right mindset? Are we doing it with a, with a healthy dose of respect? And that's what Paul is going to call the church to here um, in his, his expressions. He's going to call the church to respect. And the first respect that he calls them to is cultural and, and biblical norms. And you find this in verses 2 through 10. Um, I've already read 2, so beginning in verse 3. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is head of every woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since that is one and the same, as having shaved her head. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. A man should not cover his head because he is the image and the glory of God. So too, women is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of angels. Now, this is one of those passages that today when we read, we're like, oh, Paul, <laughs> would, would you be able to say that, uh, you know, in a, in a pulpit in, in America today? Is, is this something that you would read? But again, you, you need to understand where he's going with this. And you, one of the important things I think as well to understand here is that the word man and woman that Paul uses here can be translated husband and wife. And I think there are a few places where that's in fact what he has in mind, whether just men, men in general and, and women in general. I, I don't think that's necessarily what he has in mind uh, in whole because he's going to go on to say a, a little bit later on that, that women do have a, a place of authority in the church in, in certain respects and in certain ways from certain angles. He's not making a generalized statement. I think he's talking primarily about the husband-wife relationship in many of his expressions here. 
But I think verse 3 is, is very important in terms of understanding the, even there the, the, the context of, of what we're talking about. Notice what he says there. He compares the relationship of the husband and wife, or man and woman if you prefer, to the relationship of God the Father and God the Son. And that's a very important connection that Paul makes there right at the outset. Because one of the things I believe that Paul is, is trying to communicate there but by making that connection is that there's a difference between role and rank. I think Paul here is talking about roles primarily in their culture, in their setting, in their situation. I don't think he's talking about rank. Now, why would I say that? Because Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all co-equal. All three of them are on the same level. They're, they're all God. Okay? And, and so Paul, in making that comparison and making that connection with the, the, the man and the woman there, he's saying what? They're, they're equal. They're on the same level. They just have different roles. The Father's role in the Trinity is to lay out the plan and to give direction to the other two. That's his role. That's why you hear uh, Jesus referring to his obedience or following the Father's plan. But that's not a rank there. Again, Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they're all equal. They're all God. The Son has, however, a different role than the Father. Women, husbands, wives, they have different roles. They are. And so I think that's, a, that's an important uh, reality, and, and I think embedded in that is this issue of, of the respect for others, respect for um, the other side. And here in this passage, in, in verses 4 through 6, he, he basically talks about practicing our freedom in Christ, that that should not come at the expense of, of cultural reality. We need to be mindful of how we are viewed in our world. And so I, I kind of joked earlier, would Paul preach that in, in our setting? And, and I believe the answer is no. I, I think he'd say some of the same points, but I think he would make the case using very different images and illustrations. Why? Because we live in a different culture. I don't think he would talk about covering your head or not covering your head in our culture, for instance. Because as I look around the room, I don't see any of you ladies with your heads covered. Okay? Now why? Are you disobeying Paul? Are you disobeying Scripture? No. We understand. We understand that he's talking about a cultural reality. He's talking about something that was prevalent and necessary and proclaimed something in his culture that doesn't carry over into ours. It would be confusing in ours. It would be in fact, in some ways, it would express the exact opposite reality in our situation than it did in theirs. It wouldn't communicate respect. It wouldn't communicate holiness. It wouldn't, it wouldn't communicate the value and the worth of women. So it would communicate just the opposite. But in their setting, in, in his circumstance, he's proclaiming something that, that's trying to say, we need to present ourselves in the best possible way to the world that we sit, that we serve, that we meet. We need to communicate that Christianity, that Christ, and the freedom that we have in Christ 
uh, carries with it this responsibility to be responsive to the world around us too. Then in verses 7 through 10, he, he really goes back into the, the whole issue of, of biblical norms. He brings in the issue of creation, and that idea of creation is something he's really going to build on as he proceeds through the rest of this, this, uh, this passage, this instruction. But the way we were created, the way God created humanity, is significant in terms of how we view ourselves, how we view God, how we view our practices and our activities. We should not be doing things that undermine that proclamation, undermine that important truth that God is the creator. And so as he moves in verses 11 through 19 to his next point, he, he brings in that issue of respect for others. He says, in the, in the Lord, however, women, a woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Notice how he pulls it back there. Let, lest lest the, the society and the culture think that, that he's suggesting in some way an inequality or some lesser status for women, he, he brings the whole issue back here. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you, become to get, you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So he brings in this issue of, of respect. And, and, and he expects us, to, to again, to to bring in all of the biblical norms, all of the biblical uh, expressions here, and, and keep them all in mind. It's not just one particular argument. One of the things I often see in terms of, of this discussion of, of gender issues or of male-women relationships or, or women's responsibilities or women's roles in ministry and those sorts of things is people like to pick a certain passage and run with that and ignore everything else that the Scriptures say. Ignore everything else that the scriptures uh, present on that issue. And, and that's for both sides of the issue. Whatever side of the issue you want, I see people doing it. Well, the text says this, so we can't do it. Well, the text says this, so we have to do it. And you don't realize that, yeah, the text is both those things. There is a common idea. There is an overarching idea. And the overarching idea is that we are all created in the image of God. And because we're created in the image of God, both male and female, Genesis uh, 127, fully created in the image of God. It's not the women get a certain part of the image and men get another, and it's not 50, you know, it's not 60, 40 or whatever. We are all fully created in the image of God. And because of that, that pushes us, that drives us to new levels of respect. That drives us to, 
to new perspectives of uh, those who are not us. When you look throughout the Bible, when you look throughout how the Bible treats uh, groups that are often disenfranchised, whether they be slaves or, or women or, or other outsiders and so forth in, in the cultural setting of the time, the Bible always pulls those groups back in. The Bible always lifts those groups up. And embedded in that lifting up, embedded in that call, embedded in that revelation is the idea of God's image being who we are. We're all created in God's image. So understanding that and seeing that, says something important about who we are. says something about who our neighbor is. says something about who your fellow believer is. Christianity is designed to tear down those social barriers that so often limit. What does Paul say in Galatians? In Christ, there's neither Jew, Greek, male, female, slave, free. Christ, those barriers are torn down. So as he says there in verses 17 and 19, he says, I'd like to be able to praise you in terms of how you're doing things, but I can't. Because you and that church there, you are dividing people. You're separating people. You're, you, you've, you've divided into factions. And there's nothing praiseworthy about factions. Now, verse 19 is a, a little bit odd there in what he says. He says, indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. There's two ways to read that sentence. One, Paul is saying that, that God has, is going to use their sin to actually identify who is faithful. Okay, In other words, y'all broke into factions because that's who you are, and God's going to use that to determine who's, who's right and who's wrong. And he's going to reveal that to you. That's one way to read it. And, and that certainly is consistent with what we know of God. God often uses our sin to reveal truths about what he expects and who he is. But another way to read that is that Paul is being sarcastic. Which is a legitimate way to read the sentence. That Paul is being, yeah, you know, it's a really great idea that y'all are divided into factions because that will show who's right and who's wrong. And that reading is based upon where he goes in the, in the verses that follow, where he's saying, get rid of these things, in these factions. And so it's altogether possible that, that Paul is just being sarcastic in, in that particular expression. In, in, in either case, whichever is the right reading, the end result is the same. Disunity built upon disrespect is displeasing to God. Disunity itself is displeasing to God, but Paul's going an extra step here in saying that disunity built upon disrespect, seeing yourself as better or different than your fellow believers, is even more egregious, even more troubling and problematic. Cut it out, is what Paul is saying there. And so that all comes down then to respect for God. And what Paul wants his church to understand what he wants us to understand is that worship, the act of worship, meeting together, coming together, begins, continues, and ends with God at its center. 
it goes on. When you come together, then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another person gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I can't praise you in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you. Many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged by God. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned in the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. Paul essentially uses the Lord's Supper as an example to to basically ask one simple question. Whose meal is it? Whose meal is it? And the whole flow of his argument is, is what? It's God's meal. We do what we do because Jesus told us to do it. He quotes Jesus here. He, he reiterates Jesus' instructions here. And th these are some of the, the, the key words that we use during our, our Lord's Supper. Most pastors I've known, myself included, use 1 Corinthians 11 for their text for the Lord's Supper most often. But what is Paul's context here? Paul's context here is the worship we do, the, the activity that we're carrying out, the traditions we're carrying out, we're not doing them because they taste good or they're, they're here to fill us up. Or they're here to meet our physical needs in some way. Or our social needs in some way. We do what we do because the Lord has commanded us. The Lord has given us these principles. The night before he died, he said, this is my body. This is my blood. Do this to remember me. Do this to acknowledge me. Do this to, to communicate and to relay and to reveal that you are connected to me. I'm giving you this right, this custom, this tradition to reveal your respect and your love for me. I'm not doing it to give you just one more thing to do. I'm not doing it just to just to, to fill Sunday mornings in the future with some activity that 
you go through in a ritualistic way and never give a second thought to. I'm doing this so that you know who I am and the role I play in the life you live. So that you know that you are experiencing salvation. You're walking in salvation because I made the way for that to happen. Paul's warning here about, about the sicknesses and so forth is simply saying what? God takes this matter seriously. I was a pretty good kid. I've, I've talked about that before. I was a pretty good kid growing up. Didn't get in trouble a lot. But the one time, I, the, the, the thing I often got in trouble for was not fully obeying my dad's instructions. I wasn't disobedient in the sense of, no, I'm not going to do it. I was disobedient in the sense of, I'm not going to do it to the fullness of what you told me to do it. That was my big fault as a child. He would give me some instructions. He would leave those, those tasks or whatever that he instructed me with. And, and he'd come back, and if I hadn't fulfilled them the way I was supposed to fulfill them, I was punished somewhere. My dad took his instructions seriously. And since then, in, in the workforce and so forth over my life, when I receive instructions, that's embedded in my brain. Do it. Do it all. And that's what Paul's saying about God here. God, Jesus, gave you instructions about how to worship and how to participate in the Lord's Supper in particular. And if you're just going through the motions, if you're just doing it because, well, that's what we've always done, and you're not remembering Him, Remember, the biblical idea of remembering is not, oh, I forgot, there he is. The biblical idea of remembering is, it's a covenantal phrase. And it means I'm going to act on the agreement we have. In the Old Testament, it says God remembered Israel. He's saying, he's not saying he forgot about him. He's saying, I'm going to act on the covenant agreement we have. So when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, do this in remembrance of, of our covenant, He's saying, when you take this meal, you're proclaiming, I'm going to act on the agreement we have. I'm going to act on the reality that you have changed my life. I'm going to act on the fact that I was dead and now I'm alive. I'm going to act on the fact that you called me to your own and that you have proclaimed that I'm yours. When we take the name of Jesus, live. We belong to him. And we ought to carry out the things he's told us to do with a love and appreciation for the fact that he's even communicated to us. He's called us to an appreciation of his life, his death, and his resurrection. As we come to the Lord's Supper today, that should be at the forefront of our mind. Jesus lived here on earth so that we could understand who God is. Jesus died so that we could live as God would have us live. 
and Jesus rose so that we could have the power to become and live like sons and daughters of God. We take the Lord's Supper this morning. That's what we're remembering. Yes. Don to come on up. We're going to sing a song, and, and during this time of, of singing, we're going to, this is your chance just to reflect. Reflect on the life you're living. Reflect on the, on the question, am, do I live acting upon the covenant I have with Jesus? And am I participating in this activity this morning as an act of obedience to him? And as an act of expression of love and appreciation for him. As we sing, just right where you're at, just spend some time with God. Reflect upon what it is that we're doing here.